0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, a great adventure short story from Jack London called The House of Mapui. This short story appeared in McClure's Magazine in 1909, and it's also included in Jack London's book, South Sea Tales. And now, our story. The House of Mapui. Despite the heavy clumsiness of her lines, the aori handled easily in the light breeze, and her captain ran her well in before he hove to just outside the suck of the surf. The atoll of Hikuru lay low on the water, a circle of pounded coral sand a hundred yards wide, twenty miles in circumference, and from three to five feet above the high water mark. On the bottom of the huge and glassy lagoon was much pearl shell, and from the deck of the schooner, across the slender ring of the atoll, the divers could be seen at work but the lagoon had no entrance for even a trading schooner. With a favoring breeze, cutters could come in through the tortuous and shallow channel, but the schooners lay off and on outside and sent in their small boats. The aori swung out a boat smartly, into which sprang a half a dozen brown-skinned sailors clad only in scarlet loincloths. They took the oars, while in the stern sheets, at the steering sweep, stood a young man garbed in the tropic white that marks the European— The golden strain of Polynesia betrayed itself in the sun gilt of his fair skin, and cast up golden sheens and lights through the glimmering blue of his eyes. Raoul he was, Alexandre Raoul, youngest son of Marie Raoul, the wealthy quarter-caste who owned and managed half a dozen trading schooners similar to the Aori. Across an eddy just outside the entrance, and in and through over a boiling tide-rip, the boat fought its way to the mirrored calm of the lagoon. Young Raoul leaped out upon the white sand and shook hands with a tall native. The man's chest and shoulders were magnificent, but the stump of a right arm, beyond the flesh of which the age-whitened bone projected several inches, attested the encounter with a shark that had put an end to his diving days and made him a fauner and an intriguer for small favors. "'Have you heard, Alec?' were his first words. "'Mapui has found a pearl. Such a pearl! Never was there one like it ever fished up in Hikuru.' nor in all the Pomodus, nor in all the world. Buy it from him. He has it now, and remember that I told you first. He is a fool, and you can get it cheap. Have you any tobacco? Straight up the beach to a shack under a pandanus tree, Raoul headed. He was his mother's supercargo, and his business was to comb all the Pomodus for the wealth of the copra, shell, and pearls that they yielded up. "'He was a young supercargo, "'and it was his second voyage in such a capacity, "'and he suffered much secret worry "'from his lack of experience in pricing pearls. "'But when Mapuhi exposed the pearl to his sight, "'he managed to suppress the startle it gave him, "'and he maintained a careless, "'commercial expression on his face. "'For the pearl had struck him a blow. "'It was large as a pigeon-egg, "'a perfect sphere, "'of a whiteness that reflected opalescent lights "'from all colors about it. "'It was alive!' Never had he seen anything like it. When Mapui dropped it into his hand, he was surprised by the weight of it. That showed it was a good pearl. He examined it closely through a pocket magnifying glass. It was without flaw or blemish. The purity of it seemed almost to melt into the atmosphere out of his hand. In the shade it was softly luminous, gleaming like a tender moon. So translucently white was it, that when he dropped it into a glass of water, he had difficulty in finding it. "'so straight and swiftly had it sunk to the bottom "'that he knew its weight was excellent. "'Well, what do you want for it?' he asked, "'with a fine assumption of nonchalance. "'I want,' Mapui began, "'and behind him, framing his own dark face, "'the dark faces of two women and a girl "'nodded concurrence in what he wanted. "'Their heads were bent forward. "'They were animated by a suppressed eagerness. "'Their eyes flashed avariciously. "'I want a house,' Mapui went on. It must have a roof of galvanized iron and an octagon drop clock. It must be six fathoms long with a porch all around. A big room must be in the center with a round table in the middle of it and the octagon drop clock on the wall. There must be four bedrooms, two on each side of the big room, and in each bedroom must be an iron bed, two chairs, and a washstand. And back of the house must be a kitchen, a good kitchen with pots and pans in a stove. And you must build a house on my island, which is Fakarava. Is that all? Raoul asked incredulously. There must be a sewing machine, spoke up Tefara, Mapui's wife. Not forgetting the Octagon drop clock, added Nori. Mapuhu's mother. Yes, that is all, said Mapui. Young Raoul laughed. He laughed long and heartily. But while he laughed, he secretly performed problems in mental arithmetic. He had never built a house in his life, and his notions concerning house-building were hazy. While he laughed, he calculated the cost of the voyage to Tahiti for materials, of the materials themselves, of the voyage back again to Fakaraba, and the cost of landing the materials and of building the house. It would come to four thousand French dollars, allowing a margin for safety. Four thousand French dollars were equivalent to twenty thousand francs, "'It was impossible. "'How was he to know the value of such a pearl? Twenty thousand francs was a lot of money, "'and of his mother's money at that. "'Mapui,' he said, "'you are a big fool. "'Set a money price.' "'But Mapui shook his head, "'and the three heads behind him shook with his. "'I want the house,' he said. "'It must be six fathoms long, "'with a porch all around.' "'Yes, yes,' Raoul interrupted. "'I know all about your house, but it won't do. "'I'll give you a thousand chili dollars.' "'The foreheads chorused a silent "'And a hundred chili dollars in trade.' "'I want the house,' Mapui began. "'What good will the house do you?' Raoul demanded. "'The first hurricane that comes along will wash it away. "'You ought to know that. "'Captain Raffi says it looks like a hurricane right now.' "'Not on Pakaraba.' Said Mapui, "The land is much higher there. On this island, yes. Any hurricane can sweep Picuru. I will have the house on Fakarava. It must be six fathoms long with a porch all around." And Raoul listened again to the tale of the house. Several hours he spent in the endeavor to hammer the house obsession out of Mapui's mind, but Mapui's mother and wife, and Nakagura, Mapui's daughter, bolstered him in his resolve for the house. Through the open doorway, while he listened for the twentieth time to the detailed description of the house that was wanted, Raoul saw his schooner's second boat draw up on the beach. The sailors rested on the oars, advertising, haste to be gone. The first mate of the Aori sprang ashore, exchanged a word with the one-armed native, then hurried toward Raoul. The day grew suddenly dark, as a squall obscured the face of the sun. "'Across the lagoon, Raoul could see approaching "'the ominous line of the puff of wind. "'Captain Raffi says you've got to get the hell out of here,' "'was the mate's greeting. "'If there's any shell, we've got to run the risk "'of picking it up later on, so he says.' "'The barometers dropped to 2970. "'A gust of wind struck the pandanus tree overhead "'and tore through the palms beyond, "'flinging half a dozen ripe coconuts "'with heavy thuds to the ground. "'Then came the rain out of the distance.' Advancing with the roar of a gale of wind and causing the water of the lagoon to smoke in driven windrows. The sharp rattle of the first drops was on the leaves when Raoul sprang to his feet. A thousand chili dollars cash down, Mapui, he said. At two hundred chili dollars in a trade. Ah, no. I want a house, the other began. Mapui, Raoul yelled in order to make himself heard. You are a fool. He flung out of the house and side by side with the mate fought his way down to the beach toward the boat. They could not see the boat. The tropic rain sheeted about them so that they could see only the beach under their feet and the spiteful little waves from the lagoon that snapped and bit at the sand. A figure appeared to the deluge. It was Huru-Huru, the man with one arm. "'Did you get the pearl?' he yelled in Raoul's ear. "'Mapui's a fool!' was the answering yell. "'and the next moment they were lost to each other in the descending water. "'We'll return to our show right after this sponsor message. "'And now, back to our story. "'Half an hour later, Huru-Huru, watching from the seaward side of the atoll, "'saw the two boats hoisted in and the Aori pointing her nose out to sea. "'And near her, just coming from the sea on the wings of the squall, "'he saw another schooner hove-to and dropping a boat into the water.' He knew her. It was the Orohina, owned by Toriki, the half-caste trader, who served as his own supercargo, and who doubtlessly was even then in the stern sheets of the boat. Huru chuckled. He knew that Mapui owned Torika for trade goods advanced the year before. The squall had passed. The hot sun was blazing down, and the lagoon was once more a mirror. But the air was sticky like mucilage and the weight of it seemed to burden the lungs and make breathing difficult. "'Have you heard the news, Tariki?' Huruhuru asked. "'Mapui has found a pearl. "'Never was there a pearl like it ever fished up in Hikuru, "'nor anywhere in the Pomodus, nor anywhere in the world. "'Mapui is a fool. "'Besides, he owes you money. "'Remember that I told you first. "'Have you any tobacco?' "'And to the grass shack of Mapuhi went Tariki.' He was a masterful man, withal a fairly stupid one. Carelessly he glanced at the wonderful pearl, glanced for a moment only, and carelessly he dropped it into his pocket. "'You are lucky,' he said. "'It is a nice pearl. I will give you credit on the books.' "'I want a house,' Mapui began in consternation. "'It must be six fathoms—' Six fathoms your grandmother,' was the trader's retort.' You want to pay up your debts, that's what you want. You owed me twelve hundred dollars, Chili. Very well. You owe them no longer. The amount is squared. Besides, I will give you credit for two hundred chili. If when I get the Tahiti, the pearl sells well, I will give you credit for another hundred. That will make three hundred. But mind, only if the pearl sells well. I may even lose money on it. Mapui folded his arms in sorrow and sat with bowed head. "'He had been robbed of his pearl. "'In place of the house, he had paid a debt. "'There was nothing to show for the pearl.' "'You are a fool,' said Tafara. "'You are a fool,' said Nori, his mother. "'Why did you let the pearl into his hand?' "'What was I to do?' Mapui protested. "'I owed him the money. "'He knew I had the pearl. "'You heard him yourself ask to see it. "'I had not told him. "'He knew.' "'Somebody else told him. "'And I owed him the money.' "'Mapui is a fool,' mimicked Nikagura. "'She was twelve years old "'and did not know any better.' "'Mapui relieved his feelings "'by sending her reeling from a box on the ear "'while Tafara and Nori burst into tears "'and continued to upbraid him "'after the manner of women. "'Huru-Huru, watching on the beach, "'saw a third schooner that he knew "'heave to outside the entrance and drop a boat. "'It was the Hira, well-named,' FOR SHE WAS OWNED BY LEVY, THE GERMAN JEW, THE GREATEST PEARL BUYER OF THEM ALL. AND AS WAS WELL KNOWN, Hira WAS THE TAHITIAN GOD OF FISHERMEN AND THIEVES. HAVE YOU HEARD THE NEWS? HURUHURU ASKED, AS LEVY, A FAT MAN WITH MASSIVE ASYMMETRICAL FEATURES, STEPPED OUT UPON THE BEACH. MAPUI HAS FOUND A PEARL. THERE WAS NEVER A PEARL LIKE IT IN HIKURU, IN ALL THE PAMOTUS, IN ALL THE WORLD. MAPUI IS A FOOL. "'He has sold it to Tariki for fourteen hundred chili. "'I listened outside and heard. "'Tariki is likewise a fool. "'You can buy it from him cheap. "'Remember that I told you first. "'Have you any tobacco?' "'Where is Tariki?' "'In the house of Captain Lynch, drinking absinthe. "'He has been there an hour. "'And while Levy and Tariki drank absinthe and shaffered over the pearl,' Huru Huru listened and heard the stupendous price of twenty-five thousand francs agreed upon. It was at this time that both the Orohina and the Hira, running close to the shore, began firing guns and signaling frantically. The three men stepped outside in time to see the two schooners go hastily about and head offshore, dropping mainsails and flying jibs on the run in the teeth of a squall that heeled them far over on the whitened water. Then the rain blotted them out. "'They'll be back after it's over,' said Toriki. "'We'd better be getting out of here.' "'I reckon the glass has fallen some more,' said Captain Lynch. He was a white-bearded sea captain, too old for service, who had learned that the only way to live on comfortable terms with his asthma was on Hikuru. He went inside to look at the barometer. "'Great God!' they heard him exclaim, and rushed in to join him at staring at a dial which marked twenty-nine-twenty. Again they came out, "'this time anxiously to consult sea and sky. "'The squall had cleared away, but the sky remained overcast. "'The two schooners, under all sail, "'and joined by a third that could be seen making back. "'A veer in the wind induced them to slack off sheets, "'and five minutes afterward a sudden veer from the opposite quarter "'caught all three schooners aback, "'and those on shore could see the boom-tackles being slacked away "'or cast off on the jump. "'The sound of the surf was loud, hollow, and menacing.' and a heavy swell was setting in. A terrible sheet of lightning burst before their eyes, illuminating the dark day, and the thunder rolled wildly about them. Tariki and Levy broke into a run for their boats, the latter ambling along like a panic-stricken hippopotamus. As their two boats swept out the entrance, they passed the boat of the Aori coming in. In the stern sheets, encouraging the rowers, was Raoul, Unable to shake the vision of the pearl from his mind, he was returning to accept Mapu'i's price of a house. He landed on the beach in the midst of a driving thunder squall that was so dense that he collided with Huruhuru Huru before he saw him. Too late! Yelled Huruhuru. Huru. Mapu'i sold it to Tariki for fourteen hundred chili, and Tariki sold it to Levy for twenty-five thousand francs, and Levy will sell it in France for a hundred thousand francs. Have you any tobacco? Rahul felt relieved. His troubles about the pearl were over. He need not worry anymore, even if he had not gotten the pearl. But he did not believe huru-huru. Lapui might well have sold it for 1,400 chili, but that Levy, who knew pearls, should have paid 25,000 francs, was too wide a stretch. Raoul decided to interview Captain Lynch on the subject, but when he arrived at that ancient mariner's house, he found him looking wide-eyed at the barometer. What do you read it? Captain Lynch asked anxiously, rubbing his spectacles and staring again at the instrument. 2910, said Raoul. I've never seen it so low before. I should say not, snorted the captain. Fifty years, boy and man, on all the seas, and I've never seen it go down to that. Listen. They stood for a moment while the surf rumbled and shook the house. Then they went outside. The squall had passed. They could see the Aori lying becalmed a mile away and pitching and tossing madly in the tremendous seas that rolled in stately procession down out of the northeast and flung themselves furiously upon the coral shore. One of the sailors from the boat pointed at the mouth of the passage and shook his head. Roel looked and saw a white anarchy of foam and surge. I guess I'll stay with you tonight, Captain, he said, then turned to the sailor and told him to haul the boat out and find shelter for himself and his fellows. Twenty-nine flat, Captain Lynch reported, coming out from another look at the barometer, a chair in his hand. He sat down and stared at the spectacle of the sea. The sun came out, increasing the sultriness of the day, while the dead calm still held. The seas continued to increase in magnitude. What makes that sea is what gets me, Raoul muttered, petulantly. There is no wind, yet look at it. Look at that fellow there. Miles in length, carrying tens of thousands of tons in weight, its impact shook the frail atoll like an earthquake. Captain Lynch was startled. Gracious, he bellowed, half rising from his chair and then sinking back. But there's no wind, Rahul persisted. I could understand that there was wind along with it. You'll get the wind soon enough without worrying for it, was the grim reply. The two men sat on in silence, The sweat stood out on their skin in myriads of tiny drops that ran together, forming blotches of moisture, which, in turn, coalesced into rivulets that dripped to the ground. They panted for breath, the old man's efforts being especially painful. A sea swept up the beach, licking around the trunks of the coconuts and subsided almost at their feet. "'Way past high-water mark,' Captain Lynch remarked. "'And I've been here eleven years.' He looked at his watch. It's three o'clock. A man and woman, at their heels a motley following of brats and curs, trailed disconsolately by. They came to a halt beyond the house, and after much irresolution, sat down in the sand. A few minutes later another family trailed in from the opposite direction, the men and women carrying a heterogeneous assortment of possessions. And soon several hundred persons of all ages and sexes were congregated about the captain's dwelling. He called to one new arrival, a woman with a nursing babe in her arms, and in answer received the information that her house had just been swept into the lagoon. This was the highest spot of land in miles, and already, in many places on either hand, the great seas were making a clean breach of the slender ring of the atoll and surging into the lagoon. Twenty miles around stretched the ring of the atoll, and in no place was it more than fifty fathoms wide. It was the height of the diving season, and from all the islands around, even as far as Tahiti, the natives had gathered. There are twelve hundred men, women and children here, said Captain Lynch. I wonder how many will be here tomorrow morning. But why don't it blow? That's what I want to know, Raoul demanded. Don't worry, young man, don't worry. You'll get your troubles fast enough. Even as Captain Lynch spoke, a great watery mass smote the atoll. The seawater churned about them three inches deep under the chairs. A low wail of fear went up from the many women. The children with clasped hands stared at the immense rollers and cried piteously. Chickens and cats wading perturbedly in the water as by common consent with flight and scramble took refuge on the roof of the captain's house. A palmutan with a litter of newborn puppies in a basket climbed into a coconut tree and twenty feet above the ground made the basket fast. The mother floundered about in the water beneath, whining and yelping, and still the sun shone brightly, and the dead calm continued. They sat and watched the sea and the insane pitching of the aori. Captain Lynch gazed at the huge mountains of water sweeping in till he could gaze no more. He covered his face with his hands to shut out the sight, and then went into the house. 2860, he said quietly when he returned. In his arm was a coil of small rope. He cut it into two fathom lengths, giving one to Raoul and, retaining one for himself, distributed the remainder among the women with the advice to pick out a tree and climb. A light air began to blow out of the northeast, and the fan of it on his cheek seemed to cheer Raoul up. He could see the Aori trimming her sheets and heading offshore, and he regretted that he was not on her. She would get away at any rate, but as far as the atoll, A sea breached across, almost sweeping him off his feet, and he selected a tree. Then he remembered the barometer and ran back to the house. He encountered Captain Lynch on the same errand and together they went in. 2820, said the old mariner. It's going to be fair hell around here. What was that? The air seemed filled with the rush of something. The house quivered and vibrated and they heard the thrumming of a mighty note of sound. The windows rattled. Two panes crashed. A draft of wind tore in, striking them and making them stagger. The door opposite banged shut, shattering the latch. The white doorknob crumbled in fragments to the floor. The room's walls bulged like a gas balloon in the process of sudden inflation. Then came a new sound like the rattle of musketry as the spray from the sea struck the wall of the house. Captain Lynch looked at his watch. It was four o'clock. He put on a coat of pilot cloth, unhooked the barometer, and stowed it away in a capacious pocket. Again, a sea struck the house with a heavy thud, and the light building tilted, twisted, poured around on its foundation, and sank down its floor at the angle of ten degrees. Raoul went out first. The wind caught him and whirled him away. He noted that it had hauled around to the east. With a great effort he threw himself on the sand crouching and holding his own. Captain Lynch, driven like a wisp of straw, sprawled over him. Two of the Aori sailors, leaving a coconut tree to which they had been clinging, came to their aid, leaning against the wind at impossible angles and fighting and clawing every inch of the way. The old man's joints were stiff and he could not climb, so the sailors, by means of short ends of rope tied together, hoisted him up the trunk a few feet at a time till they could make him fast at the top of the tree. 50 feet from the ground. Raul passed his length of rope around the base of an adjacent tree and stood looking on. The wind was frightful. He had never dreamed it could blow so hard. A sea breached across the atoll, wetting him to the knees ere it subsided into the lagoon. The sun had disappeared and a lead-colored twilight settled down. A few drops of rain driving horizontally struck him. The impact was like that of lead and pellets. A splash of salt spray struck his face, it was like the slap of a man's hand. His cheeks stung, and involuntary tears of pain were in his smarting eyes. Several hundred natives had taken to the trees, and he could have laughed at the bunches of human fruit clustering in the tops. Then being Tahitian-born, he doubled his body at the waist, clasped the trunk of the tree with his hands, pressed the soles of his feet against the near surface of the trunk, and began to walk up the tree. At the top he found two women, two children, and a man. One little girl clasped a house cat in her arms. From his eerie he waved his hand to Captain Lynch, and that doughty patriarch waved back. Raoul was appalled at the sky. It had approached much nearer, in fact, it seemed just over his head, and then it turned from lead to black. Many people were still on the ground, grouped about the bases of the trees and holding on. Several such clusters were praying, and in one the Mormon missionary was exhorting. A weird sound, rhythmical, faint as the faintest chirp of a far cricket, enduring before a moment, but in the moment suggesting to him vaguely the thought of heaven and celestial music came to his ear. He glanced about him and saw, at the base of another tree, a large cluster of people holding on by ropes and by one another. He could see their faces working and their lips moving in unison, No sound came to him, but he knew they were singing hymns. Still the wind continued to blow harder. By no conscious process could he measure it, for it had long since passed beyond all his experience of wind, but he knew somehow, nevertheless, that it was blowing harder. Not far away a tree was uprooted, flinging its load of human beings to the ground. A sea washed across the strip of sand, and they were gone. Things were happening quickly. He saw a brown shoulder and a black head silhouetted against the churning white of the lagoon. The next instant, that too had vanished. Other trees were going, falling and crisscrossing like matches. He was amazed at the power of the wind. His own tree was swaying perilously. One woman was wailing and clutching the little girl, who in turn still clung to the cat. The man holding the other child touched Raoul's arm and pointed. He looked and saw the Mormon Church careening drunkenly, a hundred feet away. It had been torn from its foundations, and wind and sea were heaving and shoving it toward the lagoon. A frightful wall of water caught it, tilted it, and flung it against half a dozen coconut trees. The bunches of human fruit fell like roped coconuts. The subsiding wave showed them on the ground, some lying motionless, others squirming and writhing. They reminded him strangely of ants. He was not shocked. He had risen above horror. Quite as a matter of course, he noted the succeeding wave sweep the sand clean of the human wreckage. A third wave, more colossal than any he had yet seen, hurled the church into the lagoon where it floated off into the obscurity to leeward, half submerged, reminded him for all the world of Noah's Ark. He looked for Captain Lynch's house and was surprised to find it gone. Things certainly were happening quickly. He noticed that many of the people in the trees that still held had descended to the ground. The wind had yet again increased. His own tree showed that. It no longer swayed or bent over and back. Instead, it remained practically stationary, curved in a rigid angle from the wind and merely vibrating. But the vibration was sickening. It was like that of a tuning fork or the tongue of a Jew's harp. It was the rapidity of the vibration that made it so bad. Even though its roots held, it could not stand the strain for long. Something was going to have to break. Thanks for joining us, everyone, for The House of Mapuhi by Jack London, Part 1. If you think this first part was exciting, wait till Part 2. Thanks for sending us reviews, which we'll cover next week, and for sharing with friends and family. These classic stories are timeless, and they help to broaden our horizons in ways we can't even imagine. For me... Stories like this remind me that no matter how hard life sometimes seems, our troubles pale in significance to those of many others. Everyone, stay safe out there, and we'll see you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here, with Part 2 of The House of Mapui.